0: You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to Drinks with Tony. This week on the show, we have Daniel Paisner. He's the author of Balloon Dog, a novel. This week, we discuss how he became a ghostwriter, going on tour with Steve Aoki, writing novels versus writing biographies, an ultimate fantasy that includes Parker Posey, and so much more.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel Paisner. You're listening to Drinks with
0: Tony. And
2: the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah.
0: You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show we have Daniel Paisner. He's the author of Balloon Dog, a novel. Daniel, how are you?
1: Tony, I'm doing well. How about you?
0: I'm doing all right. We got we have a. Uh, we have a, uh, where are you at? Cause when Los Angeles, we're starting to get a little cold front. We're in the mid seventies.
1: I'm on the East coast in the New York area and it is a gray and dismal day here. So, um, it's jacket weather, baby.
0: Is it, it's the, be, it's the beginning of letting you know what's coming for the next, uh, months ahead. Yes.
1: Yes. Which is actually fine. I kind of like this weather. It's nice. It's, uh, uh, I don't need to be sweltering hot, so I'm good. I'm happy.
0: Right, right. That's cool. Are you
1: from New York? Yes, um, I, I grew up outside the city on Long Island, so born and raised.
0: Yeah. Oh, cool. See, I I feel like that that's like such an awesome place to grow up. Did you get to the city a lot when you were in Long when you grew up in Long Island?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a bedroom community. It's a commuter town, so. Yeah. You know, my dad worked in the city. Everybody I knew had a dad that worked in the city. And uh, you know, when I was um, raising my own family here, I have you know, I'm I'm a writer, so I sit in my underwear in my office and write. But everybody in this community commuted also. So the city's right here. So we'd go see concerts and shows and go out to dinner and stuff like that. So it's only about a half hour away. So it's not a terrible place to uh, to live.
0: No, now I can't write in my underwear. I don't know what it is, but I, I, I get, some people can, but for some odd reason, maybe I'm just prudish. I just, even if I'm, I, well, I'm usually alone in my place. When I'm writing, I always need pants. I actually even need socks and shoes on. That's how crazy I get.
1: Have you tried boxers, Tony? That could be a very liberating thing.
0: Yeah, I am a briefs guy. You're right. We could, could go maybe boxers. Maybe the briefs
1: are holding you back. They're constricting. You got to go boxers.
0: Right, right. But you know, I love I love the hug around it. You know what I'm saying? I-, I-, I need the hug down there. I I I don't need the dangle. Okay. Well, I- well it'd be hard. It it'd be hard for hard. me. It'd be hard for me to get used to the dangle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well, and now it's hard for me to unsee that image.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We've accomplished everything we need to accomplish. Um, you've been a ghostwriter for like everyone for years, yeah. I've
1: been doing this for a good long while. I'm an old man at this point. I've been doing this for, I guess, since the uh, late 80s. So it's like 35 years, it's a long time. Who, who, um, and I've worked yeah. with a lot
0: of interesting yeah. people. Who was, your, who was your first ghostwriting gig?
1: My very first was Willard Scott. Remember Willard Scott, the happy, jolly weatherman from the Today Show?
0: Yes. Uh, and he, and, he, and he lost a lot of weight. It blew my mind when he lost all that weight
1: did lose a lot of weight um and uh he was terrific you know he was famous for vagabonding the country you know he would do his remotes from a different corner of the world um every morning and i kind of bounced along with him for a while and the conceit of the book we worked on together that book was called america is my neighborhood and in his hands the country really became one small town Uh, and he's kind of found a way Uh, to tap into that small town vibe wherever he went and we tried to celebrate that in the first book that we worked on
0: when you're working on when you're working on um, when you're ghostwriting what's it like Um, I mean how do you how do you get their voice and put it on the page and do you have to stay out of the way or do you really have to kind of use your tools as a writer as well
1: I think you have to use your tools as a storyteller I think it it is something other than writing I I try to channel not only their voice but their sensibility the way they look out at the world so just going back to this uh Willard moment you know after you spend enough time with somebody you kind of get to know them you walk around in their shoes for a little bit in his case I was traveling with him so I I began to sort of ease in to his rhythms and his mindset and you start to think like them a little bit too so it's partly being a good mimic and being able to transpose their voice and find a way to bring it across on the page and it's also trying to think like them and try to see the world like them um obviously I don't put something down on paper and have it go out into the world untouched they take a look at it they internalize it they tweak it, they mark it up. And, and at some point in the back and forth, it becomes their own.
0: At some point when, when you, so I, 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 I've, done, I've done ghostwriting, but on the gutter level, on, on these people who think that they have great stories and have never read a damn book in their life. And, you know, the last book they read was like, Oh yeah, I had a high school assignment. And I'm like, you're 45 and you want a book. You think you have a book, but it was low paying, but it was paying enough to get the bills and it zapped my soul because these people suck beyond belief as human beings and they all want to be life coaches. So I wrote all these life coaching books for all these idiots. And, um, and then they how were. You, getting, how do you really feel,
1: Tony? How do you really feel
0: about <laughs> these
2: people?
0: Don't hold back. <laughs> actually, I let. I let me take a little of that back because there was two people that were actually really great that I did um, uh, books for. One was uh, um, he was a he was a born again Christian, and I didn't think that we would uh, we would like s- sync up. And he was a born again Christian, and he was a football coach, and I'm just sitting there going how was this going to work? And it turned out he was the sweetest one of like everyone I did and the most gracious. And he had, he was acting, you know, he's like, he wasn't bugging me about not being, he wasn't trying to Jesus me up or anything. He was just, I I was just like, wow. All right. But, but for the most part, it sucked my soul because I had to be in these people's brains and these people's brains weren't great because they didn't read. So by the time I'd send them their copy of their book, they'd be like, well, what is this? I don't get it. I mean, it's a book. It's how
1: it reads. Well, I think you sort of have to, what, what you do if you do this repeatedly, and if you do this over time for a living, you begin to develop a radar for, you know, folks who are potentially going to suck your soul. So, you know, so right away you see these red flags and you can maybe back away from that project. project. Now, when I was young and just starting out, I needed credits i needed work so i was not really in a position to say no to anything in success you know when you become more and more of a veteran then then you can look more critically at a potential assignment and say okay how does this serve me uh am i going to be able to you know is this person going to be a good hang is this going to be a a meaningful collaboration or is it going to be a chore as if it's if it starts to feel like like poking my eyes out or that I'm pulling teeth just trying to get them to share a story, then I'm not happy. Um, and if I could figure that out before I sign on, that's great.
0: What, what are some cues that um, you you see when you're figuring that out before you sign on?
1: One of the things I do uh, uh, that I've done over the years is when I meet with somebody, that, you know, they're they think they're interviewing me, which they are to a degree because they're shopping around, talking to a bunch of writers, but I'm also interviewing them. So I'll ask them to tell me a story, not in a way that they feel like they're auditioning, but, you know, they'll drop uh, a cue here or there or, or tease at a story the way people do without fully telling it. And I'll say, can we go back there a minute, you know, tell, you know, put me in that room with you. Let me feel what you were feeling. Let me see what you were feeling. If they can't do that in a 15 minute, get to know you conversation they're not going to be able to do this over the run of a 300 page book so that's that's always a great tell um if they stiff arm the idea of opening up the spigots in a casual conversation and really telling you a story in a fly on the wall sort of way to let you know that you know make you feel like you're there in the room with them if that can't happen then the book can't happen at least not with me
0: now what if they tell you a great story and it's magnificent, but you still have a gut feeling. Like what? What are some other gut feelings about the about people where you go, uh, that's good, but I can't. Well, well, okay. First of all,
1: let's forget for a moment if we whether or not we share the same worldview or ideology. You know, if these are people uh-huh. um, whose philosophy of life aligns with mine, that's not always a deal breaker. If it does not, that great story that I'm looking for it can't be a greatest hit story i mean think of your your own stories in your life you probably have dozens of stories that you've told over and over and into the ground and at this point you tell them really well you can tell the hell out of that story right yeah but i try to reach for an out of the way under the radar story that they haven't told a whole bunch uh, because that's really where the indicators will start to surface I'm not interested in the story that they've rehearsed and workshopped a dozen times before they get to me. I want a story that you know we're scratching at for the first time. So um, if the greatest hit story is one that comes to me, I'll keep sniffing around until we stumble upon another one. as far as the worldview is concerned, you know i've uh i've disabused myself from the idea of thinking that i have to agree with everybody i work with you know it's not my job to bring them away around to my way of thinking neither is their job to bring uh uh, me around to their way of thinking so um, my job is really to help them communicate their idea and their story and put it out into the world in ways that serve them
0: Have, have, have there been some where you've been totally surprised and was like That, you know, especially if you like didn't have a worldview agreement with them and was like, wow, what a cool point of view, even though I don't agree with it.
1: You know, I'm a bald liberal Jew from New York. Right. And I've I've worked with uh, Republicans. Thinning. I would say thinning. Thinning, thinning, thinning. (laughs) Um, You know, I've, I've done four or five books at this point with with John Kasich, the former governor of Ohio who ran for president in 2016. He was the last man standing in the presidential field that eventually gave us uh, Donald Trump.
0: Wouldn't he have I've, been a breath of fresh air?
1: Oh instead? my goodness, let's not even <laughs> let's not even think about that. But, you know, I knew the governor from, you know, from when he stepped away from Congress, before he ran for governor in Ohio. And he's become one of my close friends. You know, he calls all the time. You know, he'll be on online to go, um you know to see a concert he wants to know if i know this band and so it surprises me so the people you see you see their public face uh, you see you know the uh, the brand that they put out into the world and sometimes how they are behind the scenes is something wholly other so i never would have imagined starting in with him that he would become a pal and you know it's been 15 years that we've been working together and he's become a good friend of mine and we're looking forward to working on another book together And then months ahead. So, so there you go.
0: There's a lot of intimacy to it. I, I, it's, it's, it's quite intimate probably too. I mean, because I've only done the, I've only done these like very much shorter and lower paying on the, on the lowest spectrum. So when, so when you have a lot more time with these people and you're really diving in, does it feel like it's almost like a, like a, um, like you're dating for a while and then, then you got to put it on the page.
1: I don't know that I would go there, Tony.
0: It do, it does feel with, like without, without
1: there, the physical intimacy. <laughs> well, I mean, I, look, we started out in our underwear, and now we're talking about <laughs> we about, about started out our with <laughs> subject. <laughs>
0: um, I think so, this is. I
1: think that might be my problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's it. I think the, the better analogy would be it, it's it's really like I'm their therapist a little bit. You know, it is a very intimate and personal transaction, I do very often stay at their homes. You know, I visit with their families. I get to know them. I, I shadow them as they go to work or go about their days. I share meals with them. So it is an intimate transaction and you do see them. You do begin to see them with their guard down or their hair down. Um, so, you you know, I don't think these books work um, if all you get from them is the public face that they always reveal to the world, you sort of got to look behind the scenes a little bit and see how they really are. And that doesn't happen until or unless you're able to insert yourself in their lives in a meaningful way.
0: That sounds so cool because there you're just, you get to be with the character essentially that that you're, that you're putting together as their biography. Right.
1: Exactly. I mean, and, and, you know, I'll give you a good example. I did a book a couple of years ago with, with Steve Aoki, the EDM, DJ uh, this jockey and you know he's a terrific guy he's also become a good friend of mine I didn't really listen to his music until then my kids did I knew who he was um but the only way I could really spend time with him because this guy famously never sits still he must play a couple hundred shows a year or more plays to stadiums of a hundred thousand and he plays in clubs um you know a couple of shows a night when he's in residency in, in Vegas, the only way I can spend time with him is to travel with him. And I hopped onto his tour bus in the, you know, the Middle States at some point and just rode it out with him for a week or so. And he'd finish a show and, and, and do his after party thing. And like three or four in the morning, we'd climb into the bus and, and rattle ramble on to the next town. And the rest of his crew would go to sleep and he and I would stay up and talk into the night but you really see somebody in their own environment as they are after they put everything that they have out there in front of their audience after they do the meet and greets after the show and unwind you know then their their true personas start to emerge and that's where the book can starts to ha- can start to happen
0: yeah cuz that's i mean the i just i can't even think of that level of performance of being that on in front of so many people and then walking away and still having to keep the smile on and take selfies and, Oh, you know, this is great. This is great. And all you want to do is collapse. I can't even fathom that. And then, so probably yeah, after all know. of that, it's like truth serum. You're, it's just like, just lay down and be like, all right, let's go. Let's go to the like, deepest recesses. of. My you life. know
1: what? I never got the sense from him. I never got the sense from him that it was any kind of grind. You know, I think he had this kind of hard-charging personality, and you know, I'm sure he was still amped up from his show. And he's wired a certain way that I am not. Forget him; I was exhausted. You know, it's it's not just four in the morning for him; it's four in the morning for me. So um, it 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 cuts both ways. But in in that way, we were able to tease out the material we needed um, for the book, and I could begin to understand him and to understand what moved him and find a way to bring that to the page on his behalf.
0: So when do you sleep on on a project like that?
1: Well, you know, it, it was only a week. So I can always, uh, there was a documentary on his life, as long as we're talking about Steve, uh, called I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. So his, <laughs> his mantra is, you know, he'll catch up later on in the afterlife with me i'll sleep next week (laughs) you know right you you can power through anything if you have a ridiculous deadline and you got to stay up all night and and really slam it um you'll find time later on to recharge your batteries you can get through anything uh in this life
0: as long as you can see the end game you know as long as the view. end yeah, as long as the end game is a week away and I know that I'm getting sleep. Cause cause I would I wouldn't be able to uh charge on I wouldn't be able to work on that level for more than a week.
1: Right. But I knew that going in, it's gonna be a week. And it's yeah. and, you know, it was not it wasn't hell. We slept later in the morning. We, you know, we're eating really nice food, um, you know, in interesting places. It's an exciting show environment. Um, you know, so there are exhilarating touches throughout the day uh that kind of help you keep charged and and fresh um it was just long hours and and long days uh not to mention the fact that you know I'm the old guy standing backstage and (laughs) people are looking on and saying what the hell is this guy doing backstage at this Steve Aoki show but but there you go but that's how the sausage gets made sometimes and each time out it's different you know for him that's how that worked you know when I worked with Ball players, sometimes I I go with them when they're on a road trip uh, because they have a lot of trapped time during the day before a ball game, you know, when they're just sort of lounging around in a strange city where they don't necessarily know anybody. There's found time that we can capture and and utilize to work on the book. So I'll go with them. They've got work to do at night. They got a ball game. I can go to the ball game and watch the ball game. And, you know, my day is essentially done. Uh, And we've covered some good ground during the day because we've captured that trap time
0: that you know that sounds like a beautiful experience to be able to drop yourself into these people's lives who are doing things on such a on a large scale and and you get to kind of have a um you get to have a vacation almost with them and go i'm going to be i'm going to be with you for a while i'm i'm, I'm going to do this thing with you except except i don't have to pitch tonight well,
1: I wouldn't call it a vacation. I'd call it more of a backstage pass. Oh, I you like know? that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, you're invited into their world, and and my job is to see what I can see and, and learn what what I can learn, and then find a way to mix master it and put it through the art and send it back out into the world between hard covers. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. When um, when you were um when did when did you start now, did you start writing kind of a re, uh, okay i'll say it in english english is my first language i'm sorry um when i, I
1: would i would never would never have guessed <laughs> when
0: when you're young um uh, are you are you going more right. towards uh being a journalist are you going more towards fiction what what, what was your start in your writing life
1: i probably um so i i was born in uh, 1960 so i i kind of came of age or came of awareness during the watergate era so woodward and bernstein to me were like rock stars uh so i suppose that's the life and that's the career i wanted i wanted to be you know this swashbuckling ink-stained wretch traveling the globe writing wrongs uncovering truths i never really worked that way as a journalist uh, because the realities of that business is, you know, that kind of life is is hard. You know, it's not expe- especially well-paying. You know, the, the career progression typically is, you, you know, you'll start a small market paper and work your way up. You'll start on, you know, horrible beats and work your way up to better beats. And I just wasn't cut out for that world once it became a reality. Um, I always wanted to write the great American novel, but I was smart enough or at least aware enough to know that i probably wouldn't put a roof over my head or you know put braces on my kids teeth with what i could make uh, as as a novelist because you really have to catch lightning uh, in a bottle to break through the noise even if even if you have the chops and you're talented it's very hard to drive readers to that effort without a little bit of luck so i tried to be practical i just wanted to be a writer it came it came easily to me i had a facility for it I was, I got some positive reinforcement early on in school. People told me I was good at it. I was inclined to believe them because why would I argue with with them? Um, So I never really thought about doing anything else. However, I did not aspire to a career as a ghostwriter. I wouldn't have known what a career as a ghostwriter looked like. And all the ghostwriters I've met over the years, I don't think I've found anyone until recently A lot of young people will contact me and say, I want to become a ghostwriter. To me, it was never something that you aspire to. It was something that you fall back on. It's an adjunct uh, to a writing life. It's a way to bridge the gap between assignments. Um, It's a way uh, to maybe get yourself past a bit of writer's block. It just seems to fit as a companion piece uh, to the rest of your writing life. there's an annoying noise that happens in my computer. I don't know if it comes through with you. I apologize. Yeah, yeah,
0: it, it does. I, I thought mean, it was your uh eggs were done. I think your <laughs> eggs are done. I hope it doesn't
1: I hope it doesn't annoy your listeners. I don't know how to turn it off. I just think it's well, all it, my alerts that are yeah, on. Yeah, it's
0: it it's actually well you have a very um you have a very uh non-intrusive uh, uh sound. It's it's not a ding or anything. It's just like a it's kind of like a hi, I'm here. Hi, I'm here. Okay, good. Well, there yeah. Listeners
1: just know that every time that happens, it's because, you know, the
0: world is reaching out to tell me something, right? <laughs> so, so how did you fall into ghostwriting? Like what, what, what is the fall in for you?
1: The fall in for me was a happy accident. You know, I, um, I was working freelance. I, I only worked in a newsroom for a very short while for a small paper in, in Massachusetts with a circulation of about a hundred thousand. Uh, and then I started freelancing. I was a stringer for the times for, for the AP. I was doing uh, freelance work, uh, in and around New York for the daily news. Um, and I happened to, um, um, get this nod, uh, for this Willard Scott gig, which was really just an assignment. That's all it was. Nobody said to me, Hey, Dan, you go and do this. You're going to have a 40 year career doing this. This was one assignment that, and to me, I embraced it because. The money was good i mean as you can imagine as a freelance writer you spend more time hustling for work than you do actually working uh, and i was starting to find that even as a young man in my 20s that was aggravating i wanted to be working so here was a let's say a six month assignment that i could really not worry about chasing my next gig and just write my way through to the end of this it was covering my bills for those six months so i didn't have to worry about money and i really just thought it would take me to my next assignment never fully imagining that that next assignment would also be another ghostwriting Mm gig what happened then um, in the late 80s was you know once publishers saw your name attached to something whether you were a ghost a true ghost or or not but whether they saw you know that you were the guy who helped lord scott with this book then work would find you you'd get another call and say you know hey you, you did a good job here would you consider taking x and work leads to work
0: yeah that's very cool that must have been fun what was what was the assignment for was it for a magazine or what, what was the original assignment
1: the willard assignment this was for the it was for the book you know it was oh wow you know, okay had, yeah someone at simon and schuster said hey we know you do this kind of work um You know, Simon Schuster was across the street from 30 Rock where Willard Scott worked. And they said, hey, you know, go on over there. And if you guys hit it off, you can write his book. So that was the assignment. So I wasn't there. A lot of times it happens that way. You know, if you look at the uh, spines of a lot of these celebrity driven uh, memoirs and autobiographies, a lot of them emerge out of one-off relationships with a magazine journalist who's doing a profile or a beat writer who's covered a particular athlete over the course of a season or two and developed uh, a friendship or a kinship. So that's how a lot of uh, these relationships are born in many cases. Uh, in my case, it really was, hey, go ahead and, and check them out. And if you guys hit it off, you can work on a book together. Um, but again, only thinking that that was that one gig and that my next assignment would be another, you know, um, you know arts and leisure kind of piece you know, profile of a new band or or a new sitcom star or something like that. That was the kind of stuff I was doing in those days.
0: Who's your baseball team? I'm a Met fan.
1: Mets, Uh, all right. Yeah. A sad end to uh, what was otherwise a fun season. Uh, you're in California does that put you as a Dodger fan
0: well so I'm from San Francisco but I live in Los Angeles so the Dodgers are right. the enemy to me so I'm a Giants fan so uh, okay so I live in enemy territory even though I'm in the same state and um, but you guys got Darren Ruff uh, from us uh, the, this year oh, which I love that guy us.
1: he didn't do much for us when uh, when he landed here but you know we're happy to have him if he wants to come back that's uh that's great and your giants have had a nice run in recent years i guess you can't quibble too much if uh uh if there's a one one or two years here or there that are kind of a write off right you've had a nice ride
0: 2010 meant 2010 was like just magic and that's when i still lived in san francisco and it was i mean when when we won the world series for the first time in san francisco it's just like the, the i saw the fire truck I lived right in the middle of the Tenderloin, so it was like right in the middle of the city. So a fire truck came and like blocked the street, and I'm like, "Oh great, here we go," because um, here comes the riots, right? I mean, the celebration. <laughs> and so, and the fire truck does the bell, and I'm like, "Okay, they're gonna start like you know making sure you know traffic still goes through." No, they they go over there in their intercom they go, "Let's go, Giants!" <laughs> and it's just like. The whole city came to a standstill. If you were driving through and didn't know what was going on, you were parked for four hours because it was, it was just mayhem. It was beautiful. Yeah. One of the
1: great side benefits as a Met fan to what I do is that from time to time, I catch an assignment that, you know, brings me up close and personal to that franchise. I did three books with, with Ron Darling, who, um is the voice of the Mets these days wow. Best color for them and has for the last 15 years and he was you know an, an integral part of the 1986 World Championship team he's one of their ace pitchers and we've done several books together he's a great baseball commentator and we wrote um uh, some books that I'm really proud of uh plus it was a chance to peek behind the curtain you know and skulk around Shea Stadium when we started working together and now City Field and and sort of peek at my boyhood heroes um, through his perspective,
0: and 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 being with an announcer, um, I you know all we hear is the announcing part, which is the ball game. Uh, there's probably so much more work they do throughout the day in order to make those productions um, sound like they're off the cuff. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of homework. First of all, a lot of that is. Um, You know, it's innate baseball knowledge that's baked in after a lifetime in the game. So some of that stuff comes through organically, but they do a tremendous amount of research uh, before a game. And and during the game, they're sort of charting. I mean, they're not just keeping a scorecard. They're keeping a detailed record of uh, what's gone on in the game. One of the conceits of uh, one of the books we've done, we did three books together. The second book, Ronnie and I did, Was a book called game seven 1986 a lot of people remember the bill buckner moment uh in game six from that world series the mets and the red sox where the mets came from behind and the ball uh, the squibbler from mookie wilson famously went through bill buckner's legs and, and the mets you know battled back from oblivion to fight another day well the other day was game seven and that game is often forgotten when we look back at that team and Ron Darling got the ball. He was the game 7 pitcher and he kind of kicked it in game 7. You know, he he did not have a great outing. And here he is. You know, that's every boyhood schoolboy athlete's fantasy is to be given the ball in game 7 of the World Series if you're if you're a pitcher. And and here that fantasy fell into his mitt as his reality and he didn't step to the occasion and he's one of the few Athletes that I've worked with that is willing to look at and embrace a moment where he didn't shine, where he struggled. And we looked at that game as a color commentator would. It's really just about that game. And we found points of pause in the retelling of that game seven to really tell the story of the larger season, you know, the same way you would watching a broadcast. You know, a guy comes to the plate, the announcer will tell you a bit of side story or backstory that's what we did in these pages but the conceit of the book was we're going to tell the hell out of this game seven story where the the, you know the author got the ball he's pitching in the biggest game of his life and he doesn't quite bring it in the way he wanted to now the mets bailed him out and they they won the game after he got knocked out early Um, so he's able to write this from the perspective of a world champion but it was not a shining moment for him on the field and yet He wrote about it movingly with with a great eye for detail which is what's made him such a talent uh in the broadcast booth
0: wow what's the title of that book
1: that's called game 7 1986. oh okay well you already already said it you're like tony are you listening (laughs) yeah tony i can smack you around it's not my favorite title but it does sell you it does sell what the book is i forget what we sold it as i had a different you know more lyrical title in mind but the yeah. publisher quite reasonably said, "Let's call it what it is. It's Game Seven, 1986." So yeah, yeah. That's where
0: we are. Yeah, that's where we are. Well, and how fascinating to relive that with him. Um, all that I mean, do, and then book back to the booth. Do you get to sit in the booth while he broadcasts the game when you're working on a book with him?
1: I did a couple of times, just for the, um, just to have it as sort of a template, so I can see what his days were like when he does that sort of work. Uh, but not more than two or three times. Um, and for that book, you know, the way that book emerged, we watched the game together. You know, we got an old uh, recording of the game and we watched it together and we would stop tape. And I would say to him, Ronnie, what's going through your mind is the pitcher here. What are you looking to throw? How are you looking to get out of this situation? What do you remember? You know, you faced this guy earlier in the season. How did you handle him then? We did all that kind of stuff, uh, and which is what you need to do to build... A book. The same way you need to do that stuff to build a three-hour broadcast. Um, so that was a fun project, and I only mention it because we're we're talking baseball. But it, you know, it's 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 a great example of how this work brings me into worlds that would be unavailable to me otherwise.
0: I feel like baseball is. I mean, the baseball is kind of the only sport I follow, and I fe- I think it's um, part of me. I think is because it kind of feels like a book. It's almost like the novel of sports where you really get to see characters play out and the game play out, you know, and if, and the good games are the ones that are close. And I always tell this to my students. I'm like, you know, uh, I ask them what sports they're into. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they don't have them. Sometimes they do, but I'm like, what are the better games? It's when it's close, it's when it's heated. We're, we're you know, it's the, if it's a blowout, even if our team's winning, it's not as interesting and that's so but but when it's close that's when the conflicts there and that's when the push and pull of the game is happening and also push and pull of scene scene work you know and then i try to steer that all into that so
1: but it's also it's also not just the game it's the season you know it's yeah, the yeah. season becomes the story or the career becomes the story i mean look at the way someone like albert puholtz ended his career this year you know what a beautiful glorious swan song moment you know it was it was great but but that resonates only if you understood who he was and what he represented to the city of st louis what those records mean historically uh, to the game of baseball and to people who followed baseball for the past century um it's not just that he jacked one out and hit his 700th home run it's what he had to go through to get there you know so it is it is like a novel the unfolding of baseball season is very much like a novel and um I wrote a baseball novel too before my last novel before this balloon dog novel was a baseball book you might you might dig it I'll encourage you to take a look at it what's Um, the title it's called a single happened thing and it is about uh it's it's got sort of a little element of magical realism to it and the Contemporary protagonist is visited or believes he is visited by the ghost of a former ball player, a real ball player who's been largely forgotten, a guy named Fred Dunlop. He was known as Sure Shot. He was said to be the best second baseman of his day. In 1884, he played in the Union Association, which was a rebel, renegade, outlaw league, but a recognized major league. And he absolutely run, ran circles around that league. He had the most dominant season in baseball history. And when this guy died, Fred Dunlop died, he was a young man. He was 40 years old. He was drunk. He was penniless. They had to pull pall uh, pallbearers, strangers off the street to be pallbearers at his funeral. So he went from being the highest played baseball player in the land to being forgotten at the time of his death. And now a century later, He's completely forgotten. So I thought it'd be interesting to kind of resurrect his memory and look at it um through the lens of my contemporary protagonist who is struggling with other midlife crises kind of issues. So that book is called A Single Happened Thing, based oh, yeah. on the life of a real ball player, but a fictional account brought into the present.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. What um when you're coming up with um with your concepts for um, for your novels, um, I'm sure you have many, many, many more ideas. What is it that makes an idea like that stick? What is it that where you just go, wait a second, this is a thing. I'm I'm okay. This this keeps being a thing. How do I you know? How do you keep? How do you I'm know? Sure there's an, I'm, sure the,
1: it, it, I'm sure there's an equation. If I, if I was a more clever person, I would come up with like an equation like time plus curiosity (laughs) plus something (laughs) equals novel but the but the key but the key factor is probably time you know i i need to sit with this idea in the in the baseball idea you know i stumbled across this guy's legacy in the record books you know while i was surfing around online and realized that there was precious little written about this guy so for years i kind of noodled around with doing something with him yeah And at some point the pieces came together and fit with this new novel, Balloon Dog, which is about the theft of a Jeff Koons balloon dog sculpture, a a real artist with real measurable success, colossal success, um, and a a real-ish sculpture. There are many balloon dog sculptures. Many of them are commercial and industrial size. And, you know, I had this notion, what would happen if somebody tried to, you know, steal one of these things in plain sight um uh from you know one of these public um places and how would they fence that and what wheels would get set in motion and i sat with that idea for the longest time thinking what the hell to do with it Uh, and it wasn't until the pieces started to fall into place that i was able to sit down and write so you could say i was working on that book for two or three years before i actually wrote a word um and that would be accurate you know i I don't know about you but i feel you know if i'm out for a run i'm working if i'm drifting off to sleep at night i'm working if i'm staring off into space i'm i'm working and sometimes the stars just have to align and then all of a sudden that light bulb does emerge over your head and you have that eureka moment and you say oh that's how i can tie a to b to c now i have a place to begin
0: I understand it all too well. I uh, The novel I'm working on now, which I'm like on my 12th draft on, it's getting close. But um, about uh, maybe a year and a half ago, I'd been thinking about it for two years before that. And, and I woke up at 3am and I had a pen and all I had was a copy of The Economist was the closest piece of paper I have. And I still have the scribble of how to get into the story. It's just, it was like a 3am fever pitch. Uh, write this before you go back to sleep, and then wake up. And I go, oh wait, I can actually read this. And okay, that works. Let's give it a try. You know.
1: Well, there you go. I mean, sometimes I've I've been on the wrong end of some of those, you know, three a.m. scribbles too. And I'll pick up the piece of paper in the morning, and I'll see a word, you know, like scaffolding, and I'll have no idea what the <laughs> hell it means. <laughs> Or what I
0: was thinking at 3 a.m. But at 3 a.m.,
1: that seemed like the solution to some plot point I was struggling with.
0: Yeah, no, don't get me wrong. There's hundreds of 3 a.m.s that didn't work out. That one 3 a.m. worked out so far. <laughs> we'll see. All
1: right, we'll save that copy of the Economist. It'll be worth money someday.
0: Right, exactly. It's, you know, I kind of, I kind of do like uh, what do you call it? I fantasize about that. Like even because I I handwrite all my first drafts. So even my first draft is all like handwritten on legal pad and I have it saved. I got a huge, you know, pile of the first draft handwritten. And I'm like, I wonder if that, I wonder what that will go for auction 20 years from now. It's not even published yet. Right. <laughs> it is, but in my head. I'm already like thinking of the auction. <laughs> it's it, it's uh, I don't know if it's that, if it's my way of coping of doing something for no money for so long that may never get published or how, or what it is, you know?
1: well, I think we sort of have to fool ourselves into thinking that way. Otherwise we'll, we'll never get it done. You yeah. know, you have to kind of keep your eye on the prize and part of the prize for me, you know, uh, I, I suppose there was a time in my life where the prize was, you know, being recognized and, and getting a, a Pulitzer or hitting the times bestseller list with one of my novels or something. Now the prize for me is, is more realistic. It's, it's, you know, connecting with a reader and finding a way to keep them engaged and entertained and thinking for 300 pages. To me, that's the happy outcome and that's a successful transaction. And when I sit down to write a book now, you know, I've, I've had some successes as a Ghostwriter. Those books do make the Times list. I'm a known commodity in that world. It's writing, but it's writing of, of a different kind. You know, when I'm writing my own novels, the idea of success for me is, is being invited back to the party. I want balloon dog to be successful enough that there'll be a publisher out there who will say, Hey, Paisner, what are you working on? I want the next one. I want, you know, send that to me when you're done. I want to publish that. That to me is success. Whether I sell a thousand copies or a hundred thousand copies, I just want the stuff to be out there in the world.
0: It's, it's, you know, it's, I got the same, I got the same thing too, the same drive. And it's almost like um, a uh, insatiable necessity to be a part of the conversation on the page. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does
1: make sense. I mean, yeah. one of my fantasies, maybe you've had a version of this fantasy is to sit down on With Parker plane.
0: Posey. No, I'm getting <laughs> Well, that could work too. <laughs>
2: to sit down oh, on wait, wait.
1: <laughs> next to Parker Posey reading a copy of my book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's yeah. the trifecta, right? <laughs> um, it would be it would totally would be, be hello.
0: <laughs> you know, That's you enjoying me. That
1: book? That's me. But that <laughs> but that to me to be able to watch somebody anonymously as you find your book out in the wild like that would be really cool. Yeah. And I suppose you know, I suppose there are hotshot novelists every day who have that experience. I've yet to have that experience. I have, I have had that happen as a ghostwriter. You know, I've seen people pick up my book in a bookstore. I've seen people on the beach reading it, never seated and sharing an armrest on a plane, but, but I've been in close proximity and that's kind of cool. But how much cooler would it be to just sit down next to somebody as they're inside your head in that way?
0: Yeah. When, when you see someone reading something that you've ghostwritten, have you ever approached them and said, hey, that's me?
1: You know, I did once when I was young. It was uh, I'd written a book with Geraldo Rivera, which yeah. was a big bestseller, made a lot of noise when it when it came out. And I was still sort of a kid. And I thought that was cool. And I went up and said hello. And the person said, oh, that's great. I don't think I'm care." Yeah, um, you're like, wait and, a and second. So- no,
0: it's right here. Like everything on that page. You're looking <laughs> right. at it, man.
1: So I realized that for me, that was a really cool, close encounter. And for them, I was just some annoying guy, you know, <laughs> bothering them and, and stepping into their day. So I've never done that again. It's And I prefer to just look on uh, from a distance. Do you think that they didn't believe you, maybe? Maybe. I mean, look, my picture is not, uh, you know, yeah. when you're the ghostwriter, sometimes your name's not even on exactly. the cover. Exactly. Right. So, uh, so it's possible they didn't believe me, but I've, I've resisted the urge. Sometimes I'll be with someone like a friend or my wife and they'll be in a bookstore and they'll sidle up and they'll say, you should really, you should really buy that book. Oh, now it's a phone that's bothering me, Tony, I'm sorry. Now the ringer is muted. And and they'll come up and kind of cheekily say, "Oh, that I hear that's a really good book. You should buy that book." Um, <laughs> but that's kind of where it where it ends. That's that's kind of where the transaction dies. You
0: know. Yeah, I've um, I've interviewed like you know the, the the closest I get to being on the bestseller list is who I interview, and uh, I interviewed Robert Craigs. And, <laughs> and, and and he like he sees people on the plane read his books, and I'm going, "So what do you do?" And he's like, "Nothing." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I'd, I'd walk up. I would just. I wouldn't. I wouldn't deal with that much success too well because I would walk up there like I was just, you know, the the king of cool, and be like, "Hey!" And they just be like, well, "Get out of here, steward, captain. This man's bugging me." No, well, no, that's me. I promise. I
2: promise.
1: Although these days, Tony, you know, from when I first had this fantasy, when I first started writing, I think my first novel was published in nineteen ninety. So but if you look now at the Venn diagram of readers, you know, if you look at, at people who read electronically on their Kindle or their tablet, people who listen to audiobooks and people who are reading actual physical books, I've probably reduced the chance of this happening by 70 percent because <laughs> they could be listening to a book and I'll never know of mine or they could be reading a book electronically and I'll never know. I just kind of look for the my cover or the spine, you know
0: right exactly and that's that's why i love people i mean i still have to read i have to have the physical copy of the book i've never been able to read a book on kindle i i've never listened to an audiobook i've li- i've listened to parts of audiobooks but never a whole thing it's just i gotta have it in my hands And when i see other people like reading a book i'm like i look at them and go you know comrade comrade citizen hello you know it's just it's so nice to see you know what stuff.
1: i've In these pandemic times, and maybe this is also because of what I do for a living, I have discovered the peculiar joys and the unexpected pleasures of listening to books on audio tape read by the author, not by an actor, but by the author. And because of the work I do with these celebrity-driven memoirs, I do like to listen um, to celebrity-ish memoirs read by celebrity-ish authors, and there's something very powerful and personal and intimate about that listening experience. Obama's memoirs, for example, were enormously powerful, um, read by him. Right now, I'm reading Selma Blair's book, which I think is called Mean Baby, about her. uh, So far, it's mostly about her childhood, uh, which wasn't always the happiest childhood and she's reading it and she gets very emotional and of course she was an actress and she's you know she's got the ability to sell a story but here it doesn't feel like she's telling a story if she is moved by a passage she's reading you know as a listener that she's moved by the passage that she's reading which is also a passage that she wrote so there there is something kind of very naked about that experience you're you're not only reading somebody's word on on the page you're listening to them interpret their own words on the page so I would encourage you to um, to uh, resist your impulse to avoid audiobooks and sample um, some books that are read by the author.
0: Do you, have you read your books on the, for the audio release?
1: I have not. So this book is an indie press. There was no audiobook deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it hasn't really come up. Uh, some of my ghost-written books, many of my ghost-written books have been written uh, by my writing partners, uh, and they're able to bring a certain emotion to the task, which is which is great. and other in other times, you know, they hire actors or professional voice readers to uh, to do the job. But I've never been in the recording booth, and I've never had the opportunity to read my own. One of these days, maybe we shall see.
0: yeah I would think it would be so much fun if on one of your ghostwriting, um if when if someone was doing the audio version of your ghost of a book you ghost wrote, and there was a tap on the shoulder every like twenty minutes or so going, no, 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 that's not how we conveyed it. Remember, when we first talked, we had this, this and this. And like the ghostwriter just pops in every like 20 to 30 minutes or so. I, I, that would be the one of the funnest things to hear, because that would feel like we're really inside, not only the head, but also the process, you know.
1: I will keep that in mind next time <laughs> one of can, my celebrity can, we, pals can, we can we pitch that?
0: Can we pitch that?
1: I think you, that could be fun with, with the right
0: mix, with the right personality. It yeah. could work. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Yeah. That's not what that you said that day. You, no, 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 no. Let's get to the real root of this. <laughs> right. Are, are you that working? Could totally work. Yeah. Are, are, um, are you working on your next novel now? Are you working on a ghostwriting gig? Do you have your next novel? Like, in your head and you're waiting for it until you finish what you're working on now?
1: Uh, the answer is yes and yes and yes. So I'm working on some ghosting pieces. Um, the nature of this beast is you can't really talk about this stuff right. until they're announced. Even even when I get credit, um, I, I don't talk about these books until the publisher announces them and these books are officially in the pipeline. Right. So I have nothing I can talk about yet, but I have a couple of things that are keeping me uh, interested and and challenged and the novel I do have another novel I try to always have an idea and I'm kind of at that stage you know how sometimes you try to outsmart yourself and you think you'll make the pot of coffee the night before when you have a coffee maker that you can program before you go to bed so I'm kind of at the stage where I've packed in the grounds and I've poured in the water and I've set the timer and I haven't quite clicked it on yet so I kind of know what's going into it into the brew, uh, and it's kind of ready to go, but I haven't quite pressed play or brew yet.
0: <laughs> I like that a lot. When um, when do you do you find that when uh, your fiction and then working on uh, ghostwriting that they both like really kind of feed into each other? And if you took one out of the equation, all would be lost. No, I've
1: I've actually had the opposite experience. I've tried to compartmentalize the sides of my brain that do those kinds of work. To me, they do feel like very different types of writing. When I'm writing a book for somebody else, it's prime. It's usually because they've lived a book worthy life, right? They're, they're either famous or they've done something uh, that's deserving of our shared attention um, and their story has been lived, it's up and happened. So there is no such thing as writer's block. I don't have to worry about how to drive the story from point A to point B my job really becomes uh, about structure and tone and voice and what sort of the rhythm and the feel of the piece is. As a novelist, it's all of that and the story. You've got to come up with the story. So to me, I've convinced myself that it's a different muscle entirely and they don't always cross pollinate. That doesn't mean I can't wake up at eight in the morning and, and write my way till noon and break for lunch and then do the business side of my writing life but i've come to think of one as as more art than craft and the other as more craft than art
0: what a what a what a fun way to come to it daniel thank you so much for coming on the show tony thank you for
1: having me i will can i before i let you go and before i let you let me go i have a bone to pick with you it said drinks with tony so I'm uh, is the name of your show, and I'm watching the mail all day. I thought somebody's going to show up, you know, with some mixers and a bottle of something, and that you were going to host a, a nice little cocktail party while we have this conversation. I didn't realize that that part of the transaction was on me.
0: Well, it's was they, that just for your listener? No, here. Well, here's well one. I was drinking tea, so yes, there were drinks involved. <laughs> but um, what what happened was this is the story is. 20 years ago I started this show and it was uh, started as a podcast and it's been on radio. And then I just had to stop it for a while because I was working on a film and I moved to LA and then I restarted it again five years later. And I'm like, I got to change the name. Right. Cause we're not getting drunk in studio anymore. And, um, and I could, not I was like, I can't change the name. Cause no one knows who I am, but they know the show, the publicists. So I was just like, all right, let's just, so I'm stuck with the name, but it's, it could be water it could be water with tone.
1: it could be where I don't know if you're ever in New York you'll you'll hit me up I'll meet you for beer in the first round we'll have to be on you <laughs> I like I
0: like how you think okay sir oh. thanks
1: for having me on I enjoyed our visit and
2: he was walking in- Looking at his songbird And he's looking at his wings
0: Daniel Paisner on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, Balloon Dog, a novel. Next week on the show, we have Robert Crace. He talks about his new book, Racing the Light. Happy Halloween. Happy Day of the Dead. And if you're listening, you've made it through the solar eclipse in Scorpio. Oh, yes, I'm very esoteric. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.